I'm Aaron Rothstein. Welcome to Searching for Medicine Soul. Today's guest is Charles Camosi. He's an associate professor of theology at Fordham University in the Bronx, where he has taught since finishing his PhD in theology at Notre Dame in 2008. He has written for the LA Times, the Washington Post, and the Journal of Medicine and Philosophy, among other publications. He writes a monthly purple Catholicism column with religion. He is the author of multiple books, including Resisting Throwaway Culture and Too Expensive to Treat. His most recent work, published this past summer, is Losing Our Dignity, How Secularized Medicine is Undermining Fundamental Human Equality, a book we're going to discuss today. Charlie, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Hey, Aaron. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Absolutely. The title of your book is rather provocative. <laughs> uh, especially in a profession that seems, um, at least on its surface, to shy away from religion. Tell us a bit about why you wrote the book. Well, I've been a theologian and also a bioethicist and healthcare ethicist for about 15 years now. And I've seen firsthand, frankly, the shift where, you know, as a theologian, I guess, in the early part of my career and as a graduate student, I was maybe a little odd, but still welcome in most um, context, uh, contexts with regard to bioethics and healthcare ethics. But over the last decade and a half, and especially maybe the last, I don't know, seven to 10 years, um, there's been a profound shift where it's really hard even for explicit uh, theological people to get explicitly theological arguments heard at the major bioethics and healthcare ethics conferences. You can get them heard at maybe the special Christian ethics uh, evening sessions or something like that. But the broader discussion of these issues has become skeptical, if not outright hostile. So that's a big part of it. I wanted to to kind of highlight the fact that we've reached a new uh, place in that regard. But, but maybe just as importantly, I wanted to highlight um, not only the history of what it's meant to um, disconnect theology from healthcare and healthcare ethics, but, but to highlight what's ongoing right now and what's likely coming next, especially when it comes to the rejection of the principle of fundamental human equality as undergirded by a theological commitment, right, that all human beings are sharing a same nature, which is made in the image and likeness of God. And the um, really emergency that we face now with particularly dementia care is something I wanted to get on the radar in a major way as well. And that's where I finished the book. So it was really, really those two things which drove it. And, and I guess it might also help to get a sense of what you mean by secularized medicine and why as you write in the book, is it impossible to practice secularized medicine? <laughs> right. right. So, so I appear to be criticizing something I say can't exist, but so um, probably need to explain that. So by secularized medicine, um, I really just mean the kind of medicine and reflection on the values of medicine and in, in healthcare ethics and bioethics um, that explicitly excludes um faith and religion from those discussions, except maybe as kind of like a, well, we better have a rabbi at the table or a Catholic priest at the table or something like that. But the total energy and the discussion and the goods, frankly, that are being discussed are explicitly uh, non-religious. Now, 
and and even irreligious. So even the kind of hostility, which is something I talk in the book to to religious ideas. So that even if there is a priest or rabbi at the ethics committee table, um, their commitments, their um, values will have to be translated into the secular idiom, uh, a secular idiom. But as I point out in the book at some detail, and I'm certainly not the first person to point this out, just because you remove a theological or religious um, uh, set of ideas from, from, from the discussion doesn't mean that we don't have a vision of the good functioning. It doesn't mean we don't have foundational values functioning. It doesn't mean that there aren't traditions of the good functioning, for instance, like utilitarianism, right? Um, care feminism, uh, kind of technocratic individualism, all sorts of uh, traditions and visions of the good are present. They're just not explicitly um, named as part belonging to a tradition, like, uh, say, Roman Catholicism or Judaism, religious tradition like that. Um, and so in a sense, if, if by secularized medicine, we need, we mean something that's purely disconnected from those foundational questions, well, medicine is, is not that it's service of human persons, right? So it's inherently connected to that. Um, but if by secularized, we mean something more like, well, we're going to do that, but without specific reference, um, to religious, uh, traditions and ideas, um, then I guess I'm talking about something else. And when um, you mention that there are these examples of of theology kind of being pushed to the side, can you give us some specific instances that that you've noticed and some that you talk about in the book? Yeah. So, well, I mean, just just one historical anecdote or, or, or observation I think is worth making, and that bioethics and healthcare ethics is a um, uh, was began as a as its own field as a subdiscipline of moral theology. So, moral theologians were the first bioethicists and healthcare ethicists, which shouldn't surprise us if we know anything about the history of medicine, because the Catholic Church was very much connected to what we think of as um, Western medicine, and in fact, still is today. One in seven um, patients to go to hospital today is seen in a Catholic institution. So. Um, but I think it's important to note that, um, that despite that beginning, right, despite that beginning, um, the, the slow erosion of what I just described, um, has, has put us in just a very different role. So there, there was maybe this intermediate stage where moral theologians were, still welcome on ethics committees and still writing books that were broadly read in the field, but had to, again, translate what they were doing um, into a kind of secular idiom, like I mentioned before. So if you think of Paul Ramsey and Richard McCormick as being writing very good stuff, like the patient as person, Ramsey's patient as person is a classic, um, but but really disconnected from any anything remotely like a thick theological understanding of the good that they held in their, in their, um, in their personal views and in their personal lives, right at the foundation of who they were, but they were forced to translate it. So there was this intermediate step and, and philosophers really drove that. So, um, uh, Dan Callahan's book in search of the good is, it gives a really important history of bioethics in this regard. I really recommend it. 
to anybody that wants to dive into this in more detail. But he tells the story, frankly, of working, you know, with the center he founded, the Hastings Center, with his wife Sydney Callahan, and how um, this shift took place, where the philosophers kind of came on the scene and started dominating discussion and forcing theologians to be put into this context. And and then if you fast forward even from there, um, a few years ago in the the Journal of Bioethics in the United States, the American Journal of Bioethics, AJOB had a Target article by Timothy Murphy arguing um, in favor of something he called irreligious bioethics, which he defined as active hostility towards uh, anything that was explicitly uh, religious. Um, and so if, if the American Journal of Bioethics is running a Target article, um, which is uh, an article that they're featuring and that they invite commentary on, um, we've reached a new, <laughs> a new phase, and in my in my uh, in my argument, a new low for for. So we went from we went from moral theologians inventing the discipline um, to a kind of broad based irreligiosity where uh, people bringing religious views are met with active hostility. Right, and it doesn't even seem to me that that the moral theologians. Uh, are trying to impose their uh, religion on other people. That's not the idea here. I think that's probably how some bioethicists perceive it. But that is not what is going on. It's sort of bringing a set of values to the table and using reason to justify uh, changes in policy or certain ideas about human dignity and, and goods. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, except in the sense that we want our arguments to be persuasive. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. so, but that's everybody. So, if sure. you're a care, a care feminist or a two level utilitarian, you know, you you also want your vision of the good, presumably, um, to carry the day, and you want to make arguments for it. You want to poke holes in the views of of your opponents um, because you believe your vision of the good is correct. <laughs> it's uh, that's why you hold it. Um, and so from a certain perspective, somebody could look at, um, you know, a, a religious ethicist in this context who say wants disabled people protected from active euthanasia as wanting to impose their view and policies by arguing for positions against for public policies against that being legal. Right. But but in that sense, we're just like everybody else. And 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 we, we want our vision of the good. We want to argue for our position of the good and hope it carries the day. But there's nothing specially. Um, you know, pernicious about that from religious ethicists as opposed to any other kind of ethicist. Absolutely. And why do you think that this is? What is the what is the reason for the hostility here? Well, um, if I'm going to be generous, <laughs> I would say that perhaps it's something like. Um, you know, if you grow up in a secular context and you th and you and you're given false or at least misleading views of um, and examples of what kind of religious thinking is, what the religion, what a religious intellectual tradition is and does, maybe one can have in the back of their mind something that Saturday Night Live makes fun of, or um, you know that um, the Daily Show used to make fun of as as that. Um, and if that's what we're talking about, that is something that ought, that's not serious, that ought not to be part of um, a serious academic um, discussion about these matters. 
Um, and, and maybe we just need to, and this is another reason for including uh, moral theologians and other religious ethicists into these discussions is we need to expose folks who have that, uh, that limited background to what it means to work within an intellectual tradition, a religious intellectual tradition. Uh, that's the best, that's the most generous version, I guess, I, uh, that has some, maybe perhaps some explanatory power. If I'm honest, um, I think it, what has more explanatory power is the idea that really a power game is being played. And there aren't, um, there aren't, for instance, this, the same people who are arguing like Timothy Murphy for irreligious bioethics when it comes to, say, abortion or euthanasia or how we think about sex and gender, um, are not arguing for that if we're thinking about, say, um, justice when it comes to uh, the right to access to, to care, or if we think about um, uh, you know, privileging those populations who are least privileged in the broader culture, or if we're talking about ecological concern, or any number of issues with which they are likely to agree, then we don't really have a lot of this. Well, Pope Francis, stay out of this discussion because you ought not to impose your religious view on the right to healthcare onto those who think differently. We, we almost never hear that from those that at least hold power in the discipline uh, currently. Uh, but we do hear it about issues with which, uh, with, uh, related to issues with which they often have disagreements with Pope Francis and others say. And so my, you know, my cynic, uh, my cynical cap, I put my cynical cap on and I just think, well, you know, much of this is really just about excluding people and, and positions that they want excluded and they don't agree with and, and not so much actually about, um, making special rules for, um, you know, those who come at this from an explicitly religious point of view and want to have that matter in the, in the discourse. Mm -hmm. And it seems religion, uh, in this context, has a target on its back, a kind of um, straw man target that oh, this is this is some irrational thing that's being used to impose ideas on other people. Whereas underlying, it seems what you're saying is basically they just disagree with the conclusions that moral theologians come to and and use this idea of religion as some archaic anachronistic thing to push it to the side. That's right. I mean, another another thing you sometimes hear is, well, if you if you let religious people into the discussion, like how is that discussion even going to go? Like if if a you know, it's almost like one of those jokes. If a Jew, a Catholic, and a secular person walk into an ethics committee, like how is that going to how is that going to work? If you have these foundationally different visions of the good, but again, that's not something specific to um, religious uh, thinkers or or theological or theologians in this case. I mean, if you just have, say, a secular Kantian and a secular utilitarian, they're going to, that's the classic uh, incommensurable difference, right? Like there's just no way in, in most cases, except, you know, if you really define, define those terms differently, how, how those folks ever get beyond the foundational disagreement they have about the good. But yet we have Kantian type folks and utilitarian type folks who are secular in their approach around ethics committee tables all the time, writing an A-job all the time, uh, presenting at major bioethics conferences all the time, doing ethics consults all the time. And so there's really no reason, even from that perspective, um, to exclude uh, you know, religious thinkers from these discussions. And that brings me to my next question. And excuse me if I just provide a little bit of background for our listeners here. Religion and medicine were once 
openly and very intimately intertwined, not just because clerics warned that immorality and sin were a cause of illness, but it was common for clergy to combine medical and religious services, particularly in in congregations in America. Uh, The first president of the Medical Society in New Jersey in 1766 was a clergyman. The first president of the College of New Jersey was a physician and a minister. And vestiges of this remain today. So in your book, you write, quote, contemporary ceremonies at which medical students first receive their white coats resemble religious liturgies or priestly ordinations. The near complete privacy attached to the physician-patient relationship resembles the seal of the confessional where a priest may not share what a person reveals in the sacrament, end quote. And you also note that the Catholic Church is the largest non-governmental provider of healthcare in the world. Uh, and then in an article in February for Purple Catholicism, you advocated making houses of worship integral to, to vaccine administration. On the other hand, particularly as physicians, we're sometimes wary of religion. We want our decisions about which medicines or surgeries we discuss with patients to be based on what we know from scientific evidence. And any sense, and again, this goes back to what we were just talking about, any sense that religion is playing a role in that choice makes people wary, as if there's some bias by adjacency. Um, and it, I guess, goes along with that passage from Matthew, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and, and God what is God's. How should we think about religion's role in health and healing, given all this history and and hesitation sometimes. That's a wonderfully worded question. I want to have you in on, on my classes when <laughs> it comes to my <laughs> teaching my bioethics students. Um, so maybe if we think about the practice of medicine on two different levels, it helps deal with some of that. So if we think of it on one level as a, you know, it's as a technocratic practice, um, uh, you know, I sometimes uh, <laughs> refer to organic plumbers and carpenters, right? Um, somewhat tongue in cheek. Um, then it's not clear what role religion, theology, or any, again, uh, vision of the good uh, ultimate concern plays because you're just really talking about how best to fit hose A into slot B or fix hose A, a cut in hose A or something like that. And that really is about um, a technocratic practice and that's essential. And I don't want to downplay that at all. And the expertise that healthcare providers have when it comes to those practices is extraordinary. And people are alive in my family today because of those practices. And so I don't want to downplay that at all. But uh, physicians don't understand themselves as merely technicians this way as plumbers or carpenters this way. Um, they understand themselves rightly, or at least I should probably say most, right? Do not. Um, uh, they understand themselves as uh, carers and treat- carers for and treaters of people. Um, the patient is person, right? Going back to Ramsey's uh, foundational uh, book on that topic. Um, and and then we're back to where what we were just talking about, right? If you have... If you say that uh, healthcare providers are not just technicians, but carers uh, for and treaters of people, then you, if you're going to think about acting in somebody's best interest or their good, right, um, then you have to have a vision of the good. Like, what does it mean to act in someone's best interest, especially when 
different visions of the good offer different answers to that question, regardless of what the data say or the best practices for um, various kinds of uh, plumbing or carpentry um, type interactions or, or activities indicate. You can have the best versions of those things, the most informed versions of those things, and still have wildly important questions to ask about whether to do a particular kind of surgery or whether not to do a particular kind of surgery or whether it's time to kind of shut things down and let the dying process take place and enter hospice or whether to aggressively uh, intervene. You could even have, as you and others listening to this podcast know better than most, questions about whether there's a patient there at all. Like if we're talking about, say, abortion or brain death context or, or many others. And that all comes, again, from a vision of the good, from a, from a, uh, in, in many contexts, a re- an explicitly religious vision of the good, but but at least a vision of the good that is not based on what you read in a science textbook, not what you're going to learn in, in practicing with, with um, uh, your attending physician if you're an intern uh, or a resident, uh, but you will learn them, uh, or they do come from uh, these questions about foundational goods and ultimate concerns, which obviously are strongly, strongly uh, related to um, to the to the uh, goods that are proclaimed by those of us with a religious vision. So the, the, you're saying the, the ethics that underlie these decisions that we make as physicians or the way we see patients, um, that there is, that there, there is a role for religion in that for people. I mean, it's, it, it's a, it's a moral guide, a moral compass in a way. Yeah. I mean, there's really, as we were talking about just a bit earlier, there's no way to avoid those, those questions about ultimate concerns and foundational goods. Uh, We can pretend that, you know, so, I mean, this happens a lot, frankly, that utilitarianism is kind of the default way of imagining different goods if you're a scientist or medical provider, healthcare provider, or something like that. But that just doesn't follow at all. Uh, in fact, I know <laughs> intimately many, many uh, healthcare providers who utterly reject utilitarianism as a kind of default, uh, well, reject it at all, but especially as a kind of default way of, of thinking about um, the goods of medicine. I mean, especially if we think about um, uh, human persons as having inherent dignity that cannot be um, usurped uh, and and attacked, even for quote unquote good reasons, right? To to maximize utility, um, that 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 is a view that many many healthcare providers hold. And so, what we're really arguing about when we argue about those things is not about again um, best practices when it comes to technocratic. Uh, interventions, but about a vision of the good. And whether it's a religious, explicitly religious vision of the good or whether it's not, there's just no escaping that for trying to answer those questions. And that brings us to, I think, the next question. You, in in your writings, kind of bring up this idea of consumerism, um, in particularly relation to end-of-life care and advanced dementia care. In resisting throwaway culture, you write, consumerism enables throwaway culture. So what exactly is consumerism? How does it relate to end-of-life care and, um, and, and throwaway culture in particular? More good questions. Uh, c- consumerism can be a word or a phrase um, or be like a word or phrase that 
we often hear um, that also is kind of slippery, like the common good. I often get questions, well, what do you exactly mean by that? And um, so I appreciate the chance to be precise. Um, I guess uh, maybe like secularism, I, I tend to use it in a similar way, but slightly differently depending on the context. So one obvious, it seems to me anyway, place where we have consumerism is where um, the goods inherent to buying and selling of goods uh, overwhelm all other goods, um, including our highest goods. And so therefore becomes a kind of idolatry uh, in many uh, contexts. I mean, he- here's here's where I think it especially connects in, in losing our dignity to where we talk about um, elder care and dementia care and having those populations be the next to fall when it comes to um, our, our current culture of secularized medicine, uh, dominated by secularized medicine. Um, the, the buying and selling of goods, consumerism, is so much a, at the heart of our culture, so much of an idol in our culture that I think our very anthropology, our very vision of the human person um, is so connected to it that we almost can't think of it uh, apart from it, so that whether we explicitly say it or not, the capacity to contribute to a consumer culture is almost thought of as like, well, that's what it means to be a kind of flourishing person. And if you can't do that, you're somehow not as equal, not as flourishing as you might otherwise would be. Um, I think I sometimes think this is present in the phrase that I'm sure you and your listeners have often heard. Um, you know, a productive member of society. Well, what exactly does that mean? A productive member of society. It often means, I think something related to the buying and selling of goods. And that's directly related to consumerism, a kind of idol uh, when it comes to that. That's, that's a pretty dramatic example. Um, If it gets right into the very heart of what we think a human person is. Um, But maybe even in some other contexts, I think it becomes, um, it's clear, but, but, but also used in a slightly different way. So if we think about um, consumerism as related to how we think about social equality, for instance, um, and economic outcomes related to the ability to buy and consume goods um, is, is connected to the abortion debate in interesting ways. And I highlight um, the so-called reliance interests in Planned Parenthood, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the successor case to Roe versus Wade, which is actually the governing law in abortion right now. I joke around with people that Roe has already been overturned. It's Casey that has replaced it. But the um, that decision really takes abortion out of the realm of privacy and bodily autonomy and puts it more in the realm, frankly, of um, gender equality. And specifically when it comes to gender equality, understood as the equal ability to buy and sell goods. And so it explicitly says in Planned Parenthood versus Casey that abortion is thought of as kind of as has been thought of for a long time as being um, a tool for social equality for women, especially when contraception has failed. And that, in my view, is what's driving so much of the debate over abortion today. Not so much about though you hear you know autonomy and privacy and government state of my life that kind of libertarian approach much more often than I'd like. I, I think this is actually what's driving much of that. And so if we can even say, and this is where throwaway culture comes in. If we say, if we focus narrowly on one group of people and their ability to buy and sell in a market, 
and don't think about who else gets thrown away in this process. Obviously, if there's a right to slaughter innocent uh, human lives as a result of um, or t- towards the goal, this is just towards towards these consumer goals. This is just oppression redistributed, right? And the great pro-life feminists that are around today um, are making this this um, this point in spades. Uh, and that's where I think actually we need to be focused more on as a pro-life movement is making these kinds of pro-life feminist arguments against this vision, um, but uh, which which is not totally dominated by consumerism, but I think con- has consumerism right at the heart of it. And I notice, particularly in COVID nineteen during COVID nineteen, that what you're describing as consumerism seemed to explode. Uh, I just think of all of us who are fortunate to be able to work from home and all the basically kind of lower classes delivering our food and, you know, still working in, in restaurants in the kitchen, in the back kitchens and delivering Amazon packages and things like that. And there was nary a mention in, you know, the media about this kind of thing that other people were sort of putting themselves at risk while the rest of us kind of in the middle and upper classes were able to just be at home and safe, be safer in a way. I'm yeah. wondering if you, if you, if you think that's, that's right. Or if I'm sort of off, off base here. Well, I mean, if, if we had widespread starvation or other kinds of questions about our very survival, you know, then that's one, that's one way to think about that. But if it's just to make sure that the buying of selling of goods continues apace, as it largely did uh, because of the so-called essential workers, what a kind of Orwellian euphemism that is, right? Yeah. The essential workers invented by those who don't consider themselves essential in that case, I guess, in that context, I guess. Um, so, right. So I, I still need my game consoles to come. Yeah, that's that's what a, I still need all the kinds of buying and selling that I did before to come. And so there need to be essential, quote unquote, essential workers come so the buying and selling can continue uh, apace. And and we don't care who gets thrown away in the process. That's where throwaway culture, again, it hides the real effects of, the, of our consumerism so that those who are most vulnerable relative to those who are most privileged, um, we can just kind of forget about them or we can give them the title essential worker and laud them until, and this is something that's going on uh, as we report this, uh, record this podcast, you know, I am fully vaccinated. I support vaccines. I do not support vaccine mandates. But a lot of these essential workers uh, who got COVID or have gotten COVID during this time um, are the ones who are, many of them anyway, are now the ones who say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to think a little bit before I give myself or a family member or my child the vaccine. So suddenly those who were lauding as essential workers during the pandemic, uh, the very same kinds of classes are the ones coming down on them as anti-vaxxers and whatnot. At this moment, so you can see, <laughs> we uh, we treat uh, those who are on the margins a certain way uh, when it benefits us, and we treat we uh, cert- we treat them a different way when we consider it benefiting us a different kind of way. Mm. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about dementia because you you know there's a, a significant portion of the book that's that's dedicated to to this disease and patients with this disease. And I've noticed uh, in my own practice that this um, that this has become an issue. It's it, so it is really incredibly timely, and I 
and again, COVID too, it, I mean, a lot of the elderly and demented were at super high risk and many passed away because, because of COVID. Um, people over the age of 65 are forecasted to make up 16% of the world's population by 2050, up from 8% in 2010. And because dementia is typically a disease of the elderly, it's estimated that dementia cases will triple from 57.4 million cases in 2019 globally to 152.8 million cases in 2050. So it's it, it's happening at a rapid pace. Wow. And there was a recent article in the New York Times indicating that physicians in nursing homes were falsifying diagnoses, psychiatric diagnoses, particularly of schizophrenia in elderly demented patients so that they could administer these sedating antipsychotic drugs, a disturbing trend of depersonalization, if I've ever heard of one. And in May, a report by a federal oversight agency said that nearly one third of long-term nursing home residents with, with schizophrenia diagnoses in 2018 had actually no mention of this in their Medicare records for being treated for the condition. That is highly unusual because schizophrenia really is a diagnosis that occurs in younger people. You don't uh, suddenly at the age of 70 develop schizophrenia. I mean, it happens, but maybe, but it's not on the margins. Um, so, and just some background for our listeners, dementia patients can get agitated, restless, confused, disoriented, and even sometimes violent. I mean, some nurses I've known have had fingers broken or wrists broken um, when they're caring for dementia patients. So it's easier to take care of demented patients who are sedated than not. Um, and as you point out in the book, there seems to be a temptation to romanticize not only just kind of sedating these patients and leaving them in the corner, but um, but actually physician assisted using physician-assisted suicide with these patients. Why is this happening? I mean, I assume it relates to to consumerism in a way and throwaway culture. What what shifts in medicine and society are leading to this, and ultimately, what can we do about it? So, one of the themes throughout um, losing our dignity is that uh, the human populations that have fallen out of the circle of protection of fundamental equality. Uh, almost always have that fall related to a question about allo just allocation of resources and, and often related to consumerist questions as a result. And so I, w I really wish that New York Times ex expose had come out um, before my book came out. It would have been great to include in it uh, because it really confirms what I was arguing in the book that, you know, here's, here's a group of healthcare providers, often physicians, especially if we're talking about uh, prescribing these kind of antipsychotics, um, who presumably do want what's best for their patients, right? And find themselves in a very difficult situation where, um, especially during the pandemic, but not only, um, they, these, these care homes are dramatically understaffed. And um, as you mentioned, um, and, and in fact, during the uh, during the pandemic, I think I heard a story about one uh, dementia patients uh, leaving their care home undetected and freezing to death outside. Wow. Oh my gosh. Um, so you can imagine if that's the kind of shortage you're faced with in terms of um, staff and, and resources, frankly, healthcare resources, um, that this would look 
um, maybe not good, but as like, wow, we're in this really bad situation. So, so let's just name something. We have not provided, we have decided as a culture not to provide this population with the necessary resources to treat them as our equals. And as a result, we are deciding in many cases to simply um, sedate them to keep them docile essentially until they die. Um, and so it's actually, you can imagine somebody, I, I am the furthest person from a supporter of uh, assisted suicide, but you can imagine how the argument would go for it, right? Like, well, if that's what we're doing, if we're just giving people antipsychotics, pretending they have um, the, the underlying disease when they actually don't, then let's just get it over with, right? Let's just give them a peaceful death and say, be done with it. And in fact, this is, we're see, starting to see the seeds of this in Canada, which just legalized physician assisted suicide for, um, for cases related to, um, that kind of, uh, disability. Um, there's already been calls in California, which very recently, uh, legalized physician assisted suicide for it to be legal. In fact, there was just an op-ed in the LA times a couple of years ago, arguing that it should be available for people who diagnosed with dementia. Hmm. So this is coming. And, um, I think it's on the one hand, a allocation of resources issue, which is closely related to consumerism. But on the other hand, I think it's like every chapter in the book that focuses on a particular family of cases that are related to us to a kind of single issue like this. It's related to a vision of the good. It's related to an anthropology. It's related to our vision of the human person. It's related to how we come down on the question, what actually counts as us, who actually counts as us in a fundamental way. And I think we're now moving in the direction we've already moved when it comes to brain death, when it comes to so-called vegetative state, when it comes to how we think about prenatal human beings, I think even Charlie Gard and Alfie Evans and toddlers with kind of unexplained massive um, neurological uh, degenerative diseases that are causing huge problems. I, I think we're now moving in this direction where we're going to, where we're going to say, well, you know, do we really need to put the kind of resources, massive resources that are going to be necessary to care for this patient group, which is going to triple, as you said, over the next 30 years. I, I, I know that it's going to double over the next 20, but if it's going to triple over the next 30. We don't seem to have a, a, a cure on the horizon. That's for sure. Um, you know, this, we're already sedating uh, these folks. What are we going to do when the population doubles and triples? Um, I think if we don't, if we, if we stay on our current trajectory when it comes to how we vision the good and how we imagine the human person, we're just going to say, as Peter Singer says, as those that have rejected fundamental human equality who are honest say, people with late stage dementia aren't the same as you or me. They don't have rationality and self-awareness and will and autonomy, and they certainly aren't productive members of society or something like that. So so I really worry that, um, that in light of what's coming, we'll simply say these aren't people like us and uh, assisted suicide will be the next shoe to drop. Yeah, I was going to ask actually because it sounds like we're sort of maybe dancing around, like in in when we talk about consumerism, we're sort and throwaway culture, we're sort of dancing around the idea of utilitarianism. That you, this is in some ways, can you produce something for society? What is your worth? Um, and if you can't, then why are you here? That's right. I think that's right. I, at the heart of it. Our, at the heart of it is, I think, especially in medicine, a kind of knee-jerk reflexiveness, a reflexive kind of uh, embrace embracing of utilitarianism. You can you can maybe talk about this better than I can, but my anecdotal sense of just talking to clinicians and sort of, for lack of a better way of saying it, science-minded people is that they're kind of attracted to utilitarianism because it offers them a 
the kind of methodology that seems maybe most akin to the kind of stuff they've been trained in. Um, whereas the kind of reasoning done ethical reasoning outside of utilitarianism is a very different, um, very different kind of way to approach it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I've noticed too, and I think this, I think you mentioned this in the book or at least in maybe in one of your articles, it is what we do sometimes is we will say, well, the patient is damaged in such and such a way. And if I were damaged in such and such a way, I would not want to, to be like that. Um, take out the tube, uh, just, you know, put me in palliative care and, and let me go. Um, we, we project because, uh, you know, we spent our entire lives training and it's, it's intellectually challenging. And so we feel like if people can't do the things that we do, can't do the things that we did or went through, then life is not worth it. Is that That, the sense that you get to? Totally right. Totally right. And, and there, there's some objective data to show that, um, and this isn't all physicians, of course, but overall physicians rate the quality of life of their patients less than the patients themselves do. And that's totally related uh, to the insight um, you just articulated uh, there. Now, of course, there are exceptions. There are wonderful exceptions. And in particular, there are a lot of religious exceptions, though, like a lot of uh, healthcare providers who have religious commitments that are totally inconsistent with that kind of um, consumerist utilitarian uh, point of view. But but it must be said, and it's not limited to physicians either. So most privileged classes, especially those who kind of uh, think of, of again, like you said, the kind of um, headspace version of what matters, right? Like, what can I do with my brain, or what I can't, what I can't do with my brain is central, to, absolutely central to who I am. Uh, that is, uh, that is not just limited to physicians, but, but the privileged classes more broadly. And so, especially if we're going to take a kind of class analysis um, seriously when it comes to these things. Um, our, our friends, in the disability rights community, our friends in the dementia rights community, others, um, are important allies, I think, in pushing back against this. Yeah. I, I call it, uh, I call it Ivy League syndrome, Mm. (laughs) which I think is, it's pretty prevalent. Yes. What, um, what can be done about this? Is there a path forward for, for us here to ensure that, that human beings are treated with dignity? Well, uh, I hinted at one major thing I think that needs to happen um, is is we need to engage the culture and we need to call out what's happening here very clearly um, and very forcefully. Um, and we need our allies um, that I just mentioned here, um, especially the disability rights community, which has been such an important ally, especially on issues related to um, assisted suicide and euthanasia more broadly. But, but maybe even just as importantly, we need to, um, those of us that have theological commitments along these lines, we need to stop being being embarrassed about them, right? Especially in these, um, you know, circles where it might be difficult or even embarrassing, uh, to articulate them. It's, the stakes are, are just too high for that kind of approach, uh, there isn't, in my view, and we can have fun arguments maybe about, say, s- secular Aristotelians and their vision of the human person or something. But uh, aside from those, there really aren't visions of the good that uh, that so clearly ground fundamental human equality, the fundamental equality of all human beings, all homo sapiens, um, 
than this theological one, which has been the basis of it, you know, for centuries, obviously. And, and so I, I hope that actually can be, I mean, we should be more confident in articulating our vision of the good without compromising anyway. But now the stakes are just so high, right? We have this next population ready to fall if this vision doesn't win out that we really need to step up and say, no, <laughs> I'm not going to, uh, p- to try to tran- you know, translate my uh, full theological vision into some milk toast, weak sauce version that nobody takes seriously anyway. I'm going to be upfront about the fact that if we want to take care of grandma the way she ought to be taken care of, um, and the culture does, uh, then it's going to be on the basis of this theological principle that undergirds her fundamental equality with the rest of us. And if we, if we punt on that, if we, if we uh, flag on that, if we don't stand up, if we continue to do what we've been doing for the last few decades, um, it will just be another population uh, to fall. Um, finally, I guess in this overly long answer to your question, I'll just highlight what I think will take need to take place if we aren't able to reach the broader culture this way is um, the religious communities who believe this are going to have to step up themselves. I mean, if we're if we're going to have a tripling of the dementia population uh, in 30 years, uh, the churches, the synagogues, the temples, the, um, the mosques, those of us, uh, the so-called people of the book who share this vision of the good, this vision of the human person being made in the image and likeness of God are going to have to step up ourselves. And I spend some time, as you know, in the book really kind of articulating both where we've kind of responded to this in the past Religious communities have responded to this in the past, but also what it might look like uh, going forward. It it does help that maybe we have so much religiously affiliated healthcare um, in the West still, and especially in the United States. Um, but often, I don't need to tell you that doesn't actually make that big of a difference. It would have to here, right? We would have to step up here, and we and maybe it would be religiously affiliated hospitals that would be the ones and clinics and other care homes and others that would step up in a, in a culture that is just willing to throw this population away or euthanize them to say, you know, we're simply not going to do that. So maybe there are three, I'll, uh, this overly long answer again, maybe there are three different levels to think about what can be done. We can, we can do what we do as individuals and communities. Um, I talk a lot about that in the book. We talk about more that more, if you like, there is the level of um, maybe medium term level of dialoguing with the culture and trying to reverse course here and recover a more ancient and stable vision of human equality. And if that fails, maybe a third, uh, third level on, on what to do, what can be done about this. And that's to simply marshal our own resources as religious communities and be there to care, uh, for this population as the least among us. Yeah. And I, I kind of want to end with a big question um, not that these haven't been big <laughs> questions, uh, but I think it's a, it strikes me when I was thinking about this, that it is probably one of the more difficult questions to answer and even to ask too, because it, it's a, an admission that, that resources are limited. In your book, Too Expensive to Treat, you write, the resources to meet every medical need of our families under our current or any healthcare system simply do not exist, at least if we want to justly allocate resources as a culture. 
And this is so important when we talk about medicine and the dignity of every human being, because ultimately, the reality is, in some ways, we are in a zero-sum game. And just as an example, I was on a medical mission in East Africa a few years ago, mm. and I, one of the residents called me to the bedside of a woman who was probably in her 60s or 70s and was gasping for air. Um, we thought she had a pulmonary embolism, like a clot in her lungs that was blocking off blood flow from getting oxygen in the lungs. And in the States, it, things would happen very quickly. There are treatments available. Would those treatments necessarily be successful for her? I don't know. But there would be an aggressive attempt to save her life. There, the resources just did not exist. It did not exist. So we had to kind of sit with her as she passed away. That's an intense and very hyperbolic example, I recognize. But no matter how efficient of an economic system we live in, there are pecuniary limitations. And as physicians, we don't want to think about these limitations. We just want to do what's best and what's right for the patient who needs our help. So how should we think about the realities of limited resources while also trying to preserve the dignity of the dignity of every human being? Well, here is a paradigmatic example of a central issue in healthcare that absolutely cannot be discussed apart from values, right? And a vision of the good. Um, so I appreciate you ending, ending here. And I did write a book on on this topic. It was actually my dissertation and first book. And there's a question mark actually after too expensive to treat. I like to say, um, but but your broader point is absolutely perfectly taken. And, and you obviously have you know personal experience. I did round with neonatal um, teams in Europe and the United States as research for that book and dissertation. But because um, my book was focused mostly on on the NICU. Uh, but, but you have obviously, and others have dramatic insights, um, in the on the ground clinical work. Um, but maybe after the last year or so, we're as a culture, even more aware of this than we used to be because the pan, the early parts of the pandemic, at least, um, had discussions about if we ran out of ventilators, if we ran out of ICU beds, if we ran out of this, if we ran out of that, like, what should we do? And, um, in the book, um, I do talk about a kind of ma uh, micro versus macro, you know, discussions about this. We have micro discussions about um, allocation of scarce medical resources uh, regularly. We don't have them as much um, about the level at the level of the system or the culture. Uh, but I don't think, and you said this already, but I just don't think we can prescind from those discussions, pretending that that isn't also a similar set of issues at stake when we talk about systems, um, especially if we're talking about a single pool of money, like say um, a state's Medicaid budget um, or a single payer healthcare in the United Kingdom or wherever we're talking about a single pool of money. Um, if you use a disproportionate number of resources on one patient, that de facto wrongs another patient. Now, I don't want these decisions ever especially like what we just talked about for the last hour or so to be um, made on the basis of quality of life where we say, you know, Charlie guard, his life sucks. So it's time to do a, 
uh, uh, quality adjusted life year analysis of what an intervention would be like uh, for Charlie Gard. Oops, his quality of life is zero. Therefore, we have zero uh, resources we're going to put into his care. It's just going to give him just going to give him comfort care. That's not how it should work. But I do think, and we should absolutely say that whatever we do when it comes to these um, questions about allocation of resources, fundamental human equality is in place, and we're not going to make those kind of judgments that one life is worth more, quote unquote, than another. One life is more productive or more valuable along these other kind of, kinds of lines. However, there's still a question then to ask is like, what, what, when do we get into a stage where we have disproportionate treatment. Um, we already talk about disproportionate treatment um, in the in the uh, first uh, first offered by uh, moral theologians uh, tradition of the the uh, ordinary extraordinary distinction, right? In terms of treatment, now we talk about often proportionate or disproportionate uh, treatment. Um, but that's that's another thing that comes directly from our vision of the good, our vision of the human person. Can you clarify frankly, that? Really, Sorry, can you clarify that proportionate, disproportionate? Yeah. So, um, so it actually goes all the way back to a distinction made as a result of um, confessors actually asking moral theologians uh, from their experiences, including on the battlefield. Um, you know, hey, I got this soldier um, who is. Uh, you know, who is telling the the battlefield physician that he doesn't want his leg cut off, but the physician is telling him, unless we amputate your leg, you're going to die. And the soldier says, I don't want it. I don't want that. You know, the confessors wanted, who were hearing confessions from the physicians, right? Were basically like, well, what happened here? <laughs> like, did I, you know, if I refuse to cut off his leg, am I, am I contributing something to his death? Is there something I need to confess here? Well, the, the tradition developed in such a way um, uh, that there was a distinction made between ordinary treatment, which is required, and extraordinary treatment, which could be foregone, even if one foresaw but did not intend that foregoing that treatment would likely result in the death of the patient. And so there was a distinction made between aiming at the death of a patient on the one hand and, and in, in choosing to treat or not treat uh, foreseeing but not intending that death would be the result. And there's, as I don't need to tell you and probably many of your listeners, that tradition developed in such a way that there would be all sorts of things that could be taken into consideration that would um, allow for the foregoing of extraordinary treatment. What counted as extraordinary um, could be a whole host of things, including allocation of resources, which is what um, uh, my first my first book uh, focused on, trying to think about Catholic social teaching in the context of allocation of resources within the context of the distinction between ordinary and extraordinary means of treatment. Now, this tradition has been broadly accepted and, and in fact, incorporated into um, secularized medicine. So but we don't really talk about it. You know, ordinary and extraordinary seem to think, you know, and conjure up words. They're kind of antiquated words in our culture. So we talk more about treatment that's proportionate or disproportionate. And I think we can talk, I know we can talk, um, especially from from my own tradition, Roman Catholic tradition, about treatment that's disproportionate because uh, it requires a, a disproportionate amount of resources uh, from the community. And, and we don't even need to think about the kinds of cases that you and I are discussing. There was a question, for instance, back in the day about whether one had to move um, into, it was, they were big into climate back then, right? So like a doctor might say, hey, you might do better in a tropical climate than up here in 
in England? You know, what should somebody, especially if this deprive their family of resources, do they have an obligation to move to the more um, health-inducing climate, or could they stay there, foreseeing but not intending that this would likely uh, result in in their dying sooner than they otherwise would? And of course, right out of the other kind of case, they were told, "No, of course you can." say that you, know, you can make a judgment about um, the proportionate, disproportionate value um, of this treatment versus versus withholding it. And so that's that's uh, maybe a too long explanation of, of the distinction, but but that I mean and and here let's connect it to a, to a, to a, um, to a th- especially a theological vision of death, right so and affinitude. Uh, one of the things I focus on in the book in some detail is how, especially when secularized medicine is cut off from any understanding of what death is or what it portends or how it fits into a vision of the good, um, death becomes kind of an ultimate enemy and as a result can become an idol in itself so that we pursue our fight against death to the nth degree, no matter what, that's the very definition of, of an, of an, uh, of an idol, right? We give it, we give it its ultimate place where it doesn't belong in in an ultimate place. But especially if one has the sense that death is not the ultimate enemy, that um, Jesus <laughs> hanging on a cross, uh, the martyrs who who made decisions to prioritize goods other than preserving their own lives, um, these are examples from a tradition which has a very specific, very situated vision of death that fits into that tradition of ordinary and extraordinary means, burdensome versus disproportionate treatment. And so this is yet another thing about secularized medicine that that secularized medicine deprives us of, right? Is like thinking about death and thinking about um, not thinking about death as the ultimate enemy plays into all of these questions um, in really important and frankly, very interesting ways um, that if we don't allow <laughs> this theological vision of the good to at least be part of the conversation, we really have lost something essential. Gotcha. So this is about, when we think about resources, it's about balancing everything that we know we're not going to, uh, we're not going to have everything that we want. Um, but if we have a particular vision of the good, um, a sort of moral, um, guidance that we can make these decisions, maybe they're on a case by case basis, or maybe they're on a, you know, hospital or state by state basis kind of thing but as long as we are following some moral path we can we can make decisions in it in, a, in a, the context of limited resources and we do this all the time anyway i mean we we already decide you know how much the state medicaid system is going to reimburse for x versus y and that costs people's lives so this is it's not as if we can escape this on this side of the escaton right we have the the um a system beset with finitude and we're not going to escape that um un, un, until the eschaton so the the we just we need to find a way to live with that unfortunately when you when you don't have that vision and again i don't know if you this is true to your experience as well but my general sense is that death kind of becomes for for in secularized medicine the ultimate enemy so that when death is clearly coming uh, or is on, is on the horizon or is part of the discussion, suddenly there's, you know, there's really nothing for the physician to do because death is the ultimate enemy. And, and what healthcare teams and physicians can do in a different context is of course, as you would so movingly describe in your own situation as kind of accompany 
someone right um, at this at this part of their lives as they as they go on to the next. On that note, um, thank you so much for taking the time today. It was uh, it was a wonderful discussion. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on again. Mm-hmm.